nobody's saying no to you, then you're probably not asking enough. You're probably not talking to enough people because who shoots 100% like from the field? It just doesn't happen. It's not real. It, even if it happens for a year, you're not going to replicate it. You probably shouldn't replicate it. It's going to be really hard. Some of these conversations that put you on the spot and ask you tough questions. And that's part of it. And yeah, I said before, I love being a fundraiser. And I guess it's part of the rush. Welcome to Cause and Purpose, the show about the leaders, innovators, and change agents working on the front lines to solve some of the world's greatest social challenges. I'm Mike Spear, and today's guest is an old friend of mine, Larry Gast. Larry is the VP of Development at Moisha House International, a nonprofit organization that creates meaningful, welcoming communities for Jewish adults in a post-college world. Larry and I met originally on a 10-day trip to India with his previous organization, the Jewish Joint Distribution Committee, and I've followed his career ever since. Whether at a large organization like the JDC, or ones that more closely resemble a startup, Larry has infused the spirit of entrepreneurship into every one of his roles. He has tons of great insights to share that will be extremely useful no matter what the size of your organization is or what cause you might be working on. It's, it's great to reconnect. It's great to catch up. I'm really excited that you're, you're up for doing this and very much looking forward to the conversation. So thank you very much for being here. It's a pleasure. Thanks for asking me. This is fun. Tell us a little bit about growing up and, and where you're from. I'm especially curious to know, as a child or, or you know teenager, what was your experience with charity and social impact? Was it a part of your life? How did you first kind of become aware of Sadaka doing good things in the world, wanting to make a difference? You know, how did that evolve for you? Growing up, I was aware of it in the way that like volunteer with Boy Scouts and collect cans for the needy. And there's a Sadaka box at Sunday school and that type of stuff. I knew things like the JCC and other nonprofit organizations that I was sort of involved with. I knew they existed. I didn't really think of them the way I think of them now as social good agencies, nonprofit organizations, 501c3s, those types of things. Those are just like, that's where I spend my time. That's where I play basketball, where I go to camp and that type of stuff. I gave back when I could and my family thought it was important and I dad would always send me with money for Sadaka. I don't think that I ever knew that I was really going to work in this field. I think it found me. And then when it found me and I found it, I knew that I'd found something that I was willing to really commit my life to and be passionate about and blend with a career with my passions. Were some of those Jewish cultural things important to you growing up? I think for me, I went to temple and everything, but I didn't feel a huge connection and I never did BBYO or anything like that. Was that part of your upbringing? Uh, yeah, because I think I probably in some ways relate more to you uh, with what you just said than necessarily how the rest of what I'm about to say might reflect. Yeah, I mean, I went to a Jewish preschool. I went to Jewish summer camp. And yeah, I went to Sunday school. I just liked having Jewish friends. I went to a University of Missouri that doesn't have a ton of Jews, wasn't really involved with Hillel, which is on-campus engagement for college students, for Jewish college students. And I gravitated to Jewish friends. I ended up meeting my wife, who is Jewish there. I felt connected to it. And I think the, the thing that it all ties back to, for me personally, speaking from the eye, is that my dad would often say to me, Jewish people, were all interconnected. All human are part of something bigger and Jews are part of something together as well. And we all need to look out for each other and see Jews on TV in Ukraine or you see them in China. You're connected to them and it's important to take that seriously. I just didn't know at the time how much that would translate to my work. Ultimately, so many things that exist in Jewish tradition help inform a lot of the challenges we're having today. Um, expecting a child in a month, that type of thing. Or what have humans done in the past during pandemics? How have Jewish communities handled that 500 years ago, 800 years ago, 1500 years ago, those types of things. It sort of just reminds us in some ways we're not alone in this. This has happened before and things like a pandemic. And then it exists. 
was it the desire to do something social impacty or charitable generally, or was it specifically the Jewish cultural stuff that drew you into the sector? I think it was both. It's really a blend. What drew me in was an opportunity. Ultimately, I was working at a public affairs firm in New York City. And my boss there was a leader at something called UJA Federation of New York, one of the largest federations, which is an organized collection of Jews who pool resources and give it to various causes that are in need. And I learned a lot from her in terms of how that works and what that means. And ultimately, she just assigned me to work on some of these things while I was working for her. And I just thought it was so cool. I was working on this thing called the Interagency Task Force on Israeli-Arab Issues, which focuses on Arab minority relations issues in Israel, Arab citizens of Israel and strengthening Israel for all of its citizens, including Arab citizens, 20% of the population. And I just thought that was so cool. And ultimately, I love the fact that we were working on this issue and this cause and something bigger and strengthening life for all Israelis and strengthening life for Arab citizens of Israel who have certain struggles and certain stigmas. And I love that piece. And then ultimately, I feel connected to these people. I've started talking to these people. I have this shared frame of reference. We're playing Jewish geography. We're having conversations about where they went to camp and then we're getting to the work. And like, I was like, oh, so it can be both. It can be we're making a difference in the world. And I feel really close to the people I'm supporting and the people I'm working with in a way that I hadn't quite found. So yeah, I was definitely drawn to both. The first job was the JDC, right? The first job at JDC, the American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee, correct, where I was for about nine years. I'm actually a little bit fascinated by that. Tell us a little bit about the JDC. Give us the introduction. What is it? And part of the reason I ask is, first of all, they're massive, but I feel like they're also the best kept secret. They're enormous and they have a huge footprint, but nobody knows who they are. It's true. It's about, I think at this point, 105 years old, started basically at the start of World War One, And it's international humanitarian relief organization working not just Jewish communities, but primarily in Jewish communities overseas outside of North America. No operations inside North America other than administrative fundraising and engagement for young adults, which we started with within Twine, which we'll get into in a little bit as well with our trip to India. The JDC works in 70 countries around the world, rebuilding Jewish life in certain places like the former Soviet Union, where time it was fairly complicated to be Jewish during the times of the communism. And then working in Latin America, various different levels of community building and infrastructure building there, working in Ethiopia on what JDC calls non-sectarian work to build wells, to create sources of water for remote populations. Building community in all throughout Europe, which is something that we also do in my current organization. And they do some fundraising in the Jewish community of India. And the North American Jewish community is instrumental in ensuring those things can exist. And I think part of why JDC is a secret is that organization in so many ways is seeking to create sustainability among so many of these communities. And yes, put the organization's name on things, but as much as possible, yeah, it's a JDC initiative in Ukraine. And it's also the Jewish community of Odessa that we're talking about. It's not JDC thing. It's a Jewish community of Kiev or St. Petersburg, Moscow, on and on, that type of thing. It brings up an interesting point, though. How is the JDC funded? I just looked it up this morning. They have 400 million, give or take, in annual revenue, half a billion in assets. I know they do some grassroots fundraising now, but basically in their history, it's a brand new initiative. So how are they funded and how do you negotiate that sense of anonymity, that desire to promote your communities and your partnerships rather than yourself, but still maintain such a high level of funding? A couple things. One is I mentioned Federation in New York, UJ Federation of New York. That's one of, I don't know, 150 Jewish federations across, I think, North America, something like that, 150, 163. Those were created uh, to ensure alignment across Jewish communities where it's like all of these needs are important. 
let's have a dialogue about how we can do this together because I'm about to have a conversation for my organization with a guy who you're about to have a conversation with and I don't want to ask him for a million dollars. If you're going to ask him for a million dollars and not seem like we're organized, then why don't we just do this all together and then we can pool our resources and then we can give it out. And what these federations ultimately do is they give a significant amount to their local communities. So I mentioned New York before. There's also one in San Diego. They give a significant amount to their local community. And then they also say, you know what? 25% of this that we raised annually or whatever amount is going to go overseas. And we'll give some to something called the Jewish Agency for Israel, which promotes making Aliyah to Israel, moving to Israel, creating a life for yourself in Israel, learning about Israeli culture, learning Hebrew. If you're living in Germany or living in Russia, those types of things. And then some of it will go to an organization like JDC. And then these federations in turn also can say to their constituents and their donors, you give us $18, 12 of those dollars is going to stay here in San Diego to support Jewish summer camps and to support work for the elderly and Holocaust survivors and a number of different things. And then we'll send $6 overseas to support all different number of causes over there because that's the work of the San Diego Federation or any number of federations because they are all collectively helping drive JDC. That's a big piece of where that money comes from. And then JDC also has a board of about 150 people and they have to make minimum gifts that are fairly significant. They're often some of the largest philanthropists in their given communities. There's more, there's private foundations that give as well on and on. You brought up a couple of things that I want to just dive into a little bit deeper. Given the complexity with all these organizations, the federations, I'm sure all the way down to the JCCs and everybody else, how does the JDC maintain alignment across the board? And of everything they do, what do you think is the unique value proposition that JDC offers that keeps them so relevant as part of the backbone of that infrastructure? In terms of achieving alignment, I think that they do as best as they can. Being in that many countries and a significant office in New York City and then Israel and all these different operations like across 13 time zones in the former Soviet Union, I think that they really do their best to set a strategic plan and go out and have everyone executed. And yeah, all with the goal of supporting Jewish life wherever Jews choose to live in the world. Not to even mention all the work that they do outside of the Jewish community. In terms of that alignment, having a board of directors that's hands-on, having a staff that's really passionate and really knowledgeable and a blend of staff on the ground in these communities and in some of these hub offices so that it's not just top-down, like we're in New York City and we think it's really important that you guys do your programs like this, giving a fair amount of autonomy to these different communities to achieve their goals and to support their communities how they need it. So you started at JDC in board relations. And given what you described with this massive board, many of whom are major philanthropists in their own market, what was that like being thrown into that fire? What were some of your objectives as you were engaging with the board and wrangling them? What was most important to you? Yeah, it's an interesting role. I think a little bit about how that department worked at the time. We have all these different areas in which we work and we have all these different committees that help govern our work in those regions. And I found myself all of a sudden working on, they used to call them desks. So I was on the Africa-Asia desk, which is such a weird combination of things when you think of it. It's like, so we're talking about Morocco, and we're also talking about China and also Kyrgyzstan, which is also former Soviet Union a little bit, but it has this blend and like those types of things. I've often said personally that I feel like working at JDC was like my master's or PhD in global Jewish life and just like touching these places and thinking about them in ways that I'd never thought of it before. One, I was educating myself. And two, in terms of working with the board, yeah, lots of personalities. Ultimately, though, the board was there, the board is there to support the staff and to support the work and the outcomes of the organization. And it did feel collaborative. Let's talk about Entwine. What is it? What was the purpose of it? And then we'll dive in further. 
When I arrived at JDC, there was some limited young adult engagement. If you said to the CEO, how can somebody who isn't some of these board members or people who have significant capacity to make real philanthropic differences in the future of the organization, how can someone like that get involved? There were some ways. It was fairly limited, though. There was limited participation in something called the Global Jewish Service Corps, where you place North American young adults overseas. And there's a fellowship for one outstanding individual every year to go plan their life abroad and go experience a number of these communities themselves. Ultimately, though, there was very little. And I was one of several, but not very many young adults who were working at the organization at the time. And so I was brought in on a couple of times where it's like, so what could the future of young adults engagement look like here? And we would talk about things and so much of it came back to travel, young adults experiencing this overseas. And you asked like, why does this exist and how do we get to that? And I participated in a lot of the conceptualization of it. And a big reason for the why is some of what I was talking about before and that value proposition. If somebody believes that it's important that there's strong Jewish life overseas and they believe in the notion that Jews have the right to live wherever they choose to live, that they don't have to move to Israel, they don't have to move to America, that they can continue to make a life for themselves in Uzbekistan. It's up to them. That's their decision. And if they need support, then perhaps that's important. And if you think that's important, you can't make a difference in that if you don't know it exists. And our idea was let's raise awareness for these issues. And then through that, we're raising awareness for the organization as well, and really have conversations about these issues. We started having events in New York City and Washington, D.C. and all over the country about what does Jewish life look like in the former Soviet Union now? Like, let's just have a conversation, like bring in panelists. We did, we, we did a Zoom call in, or whatever it was, WebEx or something in like 2011 or something like that with somebody in Kazakhstan telling us about their life there and, and what Jewish life is like there. And it was really about raising awareness. I think today it still is too. And, and also engagement and also connectivity and so much of what was important in our opinion, like I mentioned before, was these trips. And there's something so unique that happens when you go and travel with other people, the connections you make with just your peers who you're traveling with. And then these long-lasting connections you make with people you meet overseas, and particularly in the era we live in now, you become Facebook friends. We're connected to them forever now. Those don't really wither. They don't unfriend people. You just know who they are forever. You'll see updates on them for the rest of their life, and you are connected to them, and any number of people are. And so to draw the graphs of who, who we're connected to after something like this and make young adults understand there's something that you can impact through an organization like this it was really powerful. We saw a lot of great outcomes from it, and, and Twine's still out there doing it. I want to start shifting to Moish House, but one more question since you mentioned in starting Entwine as a new initiative within this massive institution that's been around for many years. Talk about, if you could, the climate of entrepreneurship there. How did that get started? How do you build traction for a pilot program within this large bureaucracy? What was that experience like? And speak to some of the challenges. What made it work that you did versus it wouldn't have gotten off the ground otherwise? Looking at your resources is a pretty big piece of that. Who are your advocates um, internally? And in our case, the CEO at the time was a big advocate of it. There were several board members who thought it was really important. And ultimately, when you make the case to the board and the senior leadership, it's like, don't you think there should be more opportunities for young adults to engage in this work, understanding that they're not going to be giving at the level that our board is? Basically, like whipping the votes, like getting some internal buy-in and strengthening the skin around you so that perhaps if there are people who have thoughts that are like, oh, why are you doing it like this? And maybe this shouldn't exist at all. And it's like, yeah, we have enough of a foundation here that we're going to be able to do our thing. And then there's a lot of listening as well. Like I mentioned, participating in a couple of groups to what do we think our strengths are? What do we think people would want to engage in? 
And so then also talking to board members' children about what they think and then putting them in leadership roles to have a role within the organization to help drive something like Entwine. And then raising the money. It wasn't just that we had enough money at the organization to just let Entwine exist. You had to go out and raise money from several foundations and board members to increase their gift to the organization to make it happen. And also when you do something like that, then you have a little bit more freedom to exist in general because you've raised money, you have grant agreements and all that. There's those pieces. And then, like you said, when you're a hundred year old organization, there's like, well, we've always done it this way. So why are we going to do it that way? And just changing hearts and minds. And when you start to showcase the impact uh, at a board of directors meeting show, like, so this is so-and-so and she had very little involvement with the Jewish community before this, but her friend invited her on this trip and... Let's talk about how this has changed her life and transformed her understanding of what Judaism can be and also how we can support Jewish life overseas. If we think that examples like this are important, like we have to invest X more dollars into this and we have to make sure this is around for a long time and then standing ovation. Uh, so yeah, it's a number of different things and it feels like you're fighting on different fronts at all times. And it's really exciting. Like you said, it's an internal startup. We're creating the script as we go. We get to sort of choose our own adventure here in several ways. It was a lot of fun. Did you have to work hard to continue to prove the value of it? Or was it they just sort of got it after the first couple of trips and first year or so, like they just understood the value? Or was it an ongoing battle to continue the funding and continue the support for it? I don't know that it's any different than lots of other initiatives where it's, okay, like I see the value in it, but, and tell me more. What's next? How does it grow? Like, how does it scale? And then also an existential question of could something like this sustain itself? Should we be asking our participants to give back in more explicit ways? Should we have more goals around that? So I think the answer is both, where it's, yes, this must exist forever. Also, please continue to prove why you're useful. And I don't know that that's necessarily unusual for something that's, that's fledgling, that's being created, that's coming out of nowhere and is a startup and needs continued buy-in. All right. So you have these roles, you worked on Entwine, you built this thing. How did you know it was time to leave? When were you ready to move on to the next adventure and what prompted that decision? It was circumstantial. I was living in New York City. My wife and I had just had a kid. We're living in this one and a half bedroom place in Park Slope. And we're like, why? It's just it's so hard. We don't have family here. Maybe it's, now's the time. My wife's from Chicago. We were like, okay, let's take a leap. Let's go to Chicago. Let's give that a shot. And JDC was super supportive and said, okay, you can work remotely from there for a little while and you look for something new and ultimately we'll put out a job description. We'll look to replace your position. I saw that Moisture House was hiring and I saw it was a fundraising position and I had not done fundraising before. I was like, okay, <laughs> I know this is important. I know that leaders and organizations spend a significant amount of their time doing this. I see myself as a leader <laughs> or I would like to be. And I think I might be okay at it. Let's give that a shot. And yeah, that, that was the choice. And it also worked well for me with Moish House because through JDC and through all these trips overseas, the first Moish House I went to was in Buenos Aires in 2010, leading University of Wisconsin Hillel's trip overseas uh, to there. And all of a sudden I'm at Shabbat dinner at Moish House in Buenos Aires. I don't know what this thing is really. I saw it on the itinerary, asked a couple of questions. I was like, all right, this sounds good. And I show up and they're hugging me. They're like, welcome to our home. Our home is your home. And ultimately, I felt like I knew these guys forever. I felt like I went to camp with them. Next morning, house I went to was in Kiev with JDC. Next morning, house I went to was in Warsaw with JDC. So I kept seeing it, experiencing it internationally. And so I knew when I saw this, I was like, this is great. And for me, the global piece, the pluralistic piece, the non-denominational, the community building piece, like it really resonated with me. So I gave it a shot. What is Moisha House? What are the programs like? How do you describe it as an organization? And what the objective is, what the impact is they're going for? Moisha House was created out of the idea that the young adults do want to be involved in, in Jewish life and be part of Jewish communities. 
And there's lots of different institutions that have existed for over 100 years in some cases. Like I mentioned, federations like synagogues, and those are really important. And many young adults do get involved in those things. And also lots of other young adults will never go to those things for a lot of the reasons why you and I talked about, where we go to synagogue when we were kids or not necessarily for me. I might not ever join a federation. I might not really even be welcome in some ways at a federation given my giving abilities. And that's shifted and changed and all that. Ultimately, Moish House was created out of this notion that young adults do want to be involved in what's a new solution for that. This can be one. The idea is peer-led, so young adults planning programs for young adults, not staff-led. We have three to five young adults who live in a Moisha house together who plan five to seven programs a month for their communities. And those programs are Jewish holidays and Shabbat. There's Takun Alam, giving back to the world, volunteerism, learning about bigger topics. There's social programs. And then there's like Jewish learning. So bringing in a rabbi or getting together a study sheet, learning something from our traditions. So, so you might do like some sort of study on something from the, the Talmud one night and then the next night you're watching the Super Bowl uh, or that type of thing. And those are both house programs and you need both. So the idea that young adults know how to build community for themselves and are looking for the outlet to do it is what Moish House is all about. So these residents receive a rent subsidy to turn their house essentially into a community center five to seven times a month. They also receive a program budget. They decide what their programs are and we give them sort of like bumpers to stay within and then they create the programs that they think their community is going to be most engaged by. And it started as a really small idea in the Bay Area in 2006 and started with one Moisha house and we have... Uh, about 140 Moish houses in 30 countries now. I want to dive into your role there, but first, culturally, you come from JDC, which is a 100-year-old organization, <laughs> billions of dollars, mm -hmm. to this grassroots, decentralized startup, essentially. Did you have culture shock? What are some of the differences that you noticed and some of the opportunities that it opened up for you? I was with an internal startup at JDC for a little bit at the end there as well. So I did work with a founder there too. And then also though, someone who created this thing completely on his own, his name is David Siegelman. He's the CEO and founder of Moish House. Working that closely with a founder like that, who's so passionate and just so committed to his story, I was so impactful too. That was a major piece of it. And yeah, there was some key differences. I guess when I started, the budget was like 3.6 million or something like that. This year, we're like 15 million. We've grown so much in terms of professionalism at the time. I think we had maybe 20-ish employees 25 when I started we're like over 60 now there was a lot of rough around the edges and also like at the same time for that to exist and at the same time to see whoa this is like super impactful I love talking to these residents they're so passionate they're creating these really cool experiences that their communities are really coalescing around it was exciting it's still exciting I still love showing up to work every day it's been cool to see the transformation I looked up the numbers Two, what are some of the secrets of the success of going from that early stage to like, I mean, 16 million is no joke. That's far and beyond what most organizations will ever raise. What's that path been like and how have you been a part of that transformation? There's so many different pieces to the success. One is having a founder and CEO who is as passionate and willing to fundraise to the degree that David has is a major piece of that. And so much of that 16 million is not just houses anymore. We do a lot more than houses now. His vision for houses are an important piece of what we do. And also we need to keep layering in new modes because some people will never come to a moisture house, but they will go to your summer camp for young adults. Or they'll participate in one of our open door communities, which are these pluralistic, independent, spiritual communities led by rabbis all over the country that are super popular and really attract young families in particular and young adults. So like, how can we have impact beyond the houses? Thinking that way, like really helps you grow as well. Transparency was a huge thing. I just remember thinking it was so noteworthy when I first came to the organization and David is opening up the budget and he still does it. He opens up the organizational budget in front of all the Boyce House residents and says, 
here's our income, here's our expenses. Let me walk you through all of it. And if you have questions, then let me know. Of course they have questions, but it's just like, we're an open book. This is how we do it. I think that our funders appreciate that as well. In terms of growing like this, two other things that come to mind. One is some really strong, passionate, institutional supporters who were with Moisha House from the very beginning or like with support from organizations like that. Then my team of field fundraisers goes out and we're able to raise money in local communities from philanthropists to really round up into the number that you were just talking about there. And then a really passionate board of directors too. Our board is like a family. It really is. And it's like 20 people and it means giving a lot of your time. And it also means you're going to give like a good amount of your soul too, because you're connecting with these people who become your family. And that has really played out year over year is an experience that I've seen through this and to hear from other organizations too. It's like to become a model in that way, I think feeds into all the other different pieces. So if that's really humming, then so many other pieces can keep humming. Can you talk a little bit more about that level of transparency? I mean, opening the books like that, transparency is a crucial aspect of the success of any organization these days. But in the nonprofit sector, I feel like it's kind of a revolutionary idea to have that level of openness with, in this case, it sounds like not just the board, but also just program participants, residents in a house, that sort of thing. Was that always a part of the ethos? Did it evolve for some reason in particular? And what's the role that that plays in Moesha House's ongoing culture and success? I think a big reason that this happened is because of David's belief in how valuable it is to understand budgets. Like, if you think that it's important that organizations should exist, you should probably understand how their budgets work. He says that all the time, even at our staff meetings, when perhaps our finance director will walk through like the budgetary process and where we are for the year with that. And then he'll say, are you sure? Who has questions on this? This is the time. Like, we're talking about all these pieces now. You can ask me anything in front of everybody. It's okay. I think that he believes that if you understand that part and you understand that we're not hiding anything like her, that all the pieces matter, that you matter too. And drives better outcomes probably from your staff as well and resonates with funders too. You were never a fundraiser before. You were sort of on these little startups within organizations and doing trips, which there's a fundraising element to that, I suppose, and indirectly. Now you're thrown into the fire. What was it like becoming a fundraiser, not having done that in the past? If I'm being real, I was in denial initially. I was like, yeah, so sure, it's fundraising, but that's isn't that nice that people just give us money and it's fine. I, mean, I don't even, even have to ask them, whatever. It'll be fine. I don't have to do anything. Like, I don't really have to do that. And then I got here and it was like, so you have annual goals in terms of how much you need to raise and those types of things. And I was grateful for that ultimately. I'm like, oh, yes, I'm being held accountable. This is perfect. Oh, fine. Okay, I'll go out and do this. And it was a little harrowing initially. It's like, so how does this work? One of the first things I really had to endure was this notion of, so now that I'm a fundraiser, does that mean that all my friends are going to think I'm going to ask them for money? And what I realized through that was all of my friends are going to think I'm going to ask them for money if I ask my friends for money. And I don't have to ask my friends for money. There's lots of people who care about what we're doing, who can support this and will support this and want to have conversations with me. And I got to go find them. And being said no to is part of it. Being ignored is part of it. Because the upside is way more there and you're going to experience more of the upside if you're any good at it. To start getting on airplanes and going to Houston and going to Dallas and getting these meetings in Chicago and just putting on suits and having conversations about philanthropic priorities and the impact of my organization. And I loved it. I really loved it. I still love it. It's a new puzzle every day. Every grant application, every conversation with a supporter, a potential supporter. It really is fun. You get to know them. They get to know you. And sometimes become part of your family. Sometimes it's a relationship that's transactional. I got to build this incredible team. And the way that I say that JDC was like my, my PhD in global Jewish life. So grateful that I get to work on the international piece too. And one third of our 140 Moish houses are overseas. 
I got to learn about the Jewish Federation of New Orleans and the Jewish community of New Orleans and Detroit and Columbus. And I found that fascinating. I still find it fascinating. I'm still energized by what's the difference between Jews in St. Paul and Minneapolis? How does that dichotomy work? I loved that. And I've enjoyed being a fundraiser. Did you have anxiety in the early days about making certain asks? And if so, how'd you get past that? Yes, I did. And yes, I do. I still do. <laughs> And I feel like anybody who says they don't, I don't know if I necessarily believe it. I did and I do. And I get past it by knowing that they're talking to me because like we're up here for a reason. They know what's up. They know why we're having this conversation. They might say no. They might say yes. And I know that I have the support from my and the understanding from my team. If they say no, then you probably did your best. And I say it to my team too. And I believe it wholeheartedly. If nobody's saying no to you, then you're probably not asking enough. You're probably not talking to enough people because who shoots 100% from the field? It just doesn't happen. It's not real. Even if it happens for a year, you're not going to replicate it. You probably shouldn't replicate it. It's going to happen and it's going to be stressful sometimes. It's going to be really hard. Some of these conversations that put you on the spot and ask you tough questions and that's part of it. And yeah, I said before, I love being a fundraiser and I guess it's part of the rush. I don't know. I definitely still feel the anxiety. Let's expand on that a little bit. How do you think about making an ask? What's that individual gift cycle like with an individual donor? And especially, how do you customize it? You mentioned people are different in Chicago versus in Dallas versus New Orleans. How do you go about customizing the ask and customizing that cycle based on who the donor is you're talking to and what they care about? Everyone's an individual. There's best practices and there's things that people expect as donors. And then every single person is different. And then I'm wary if anyone says, this is the way you do it, or like, this is what donors expect or anything like that. Because anyone who works in absolutes around that, it's just, I haven't seen it to be true in several ways. So there's certain things that we do with uh, first trying to understand what they've given to previously, what they care about, what they support, try to get an understanding of different levels to which they've given previously and to what organizations. And and some certain math that sometimes can be extrapolated from that. If they give a certain level to this organization, then it's likely that their gift to us would be maybe a third of that, at least for a first time gift or something like that. If it's your third or fourth or fifth time asking them for support, maybe we're talking about multi-year gifts. Maybe we should be talking about a significant increase. Even more and more now we're talking about legacy giving or giving space for those types of opportunities. And then, yeah, I feel like you're pinned together as well. Like, how do you engage these donors like throughout the year as well and make them feel connected to the work? And we have a whole touch point system where we're sending updates throughout the year that are related to what they care about and also broad updates on the organization. And then also trying to build in times for just conversation about what's going on in your life and what, what's going on in your community. And what can I learn from that that I can extrapolate further into my work and my better understanding of your community and perhaps better understand uh, where this gift and this relationship could go in the future. And the last thing I'll say about that is we have lots of different things that donors can support. So it started really with local support. And so Moshe House basically costs between fifty dollars to $70,000 a year. And your support will stay in San Diego and ensure that this is going towards young adult engagement there. We have significant need overseas, raising money for Moshe House overseas as well. So we call the Moshe House International Fund, talking to them about what our impact looks overseas and explaining like it's harder to raise money in the local community in a place like Sofia, Bulgaria, than it is in a place like uh, San Diego or Chicago or uh, New York, Philadelphia, whatever. Your, your support goes so far over there. All different pieces within the organization that, uh, that might speak more to what they're passionate about.
Got it. A couple of questions along these lines. When you first started, I, I'm just assuming it was Larry going out there trying to uh, engage a bunch of donors. And then you sort of built a team underneath you, right? How do you, how do you scale out these individual fundraising cycles to a larger team? And, and how do you think about the career development of some of the folks that uh, you have out there in the field? Great questions. I love that. Um, so how do we scale it out? That was sort of borne out by the local need, particularly in North America, where it's like, because... We, the way that my organization works is like we, we do have, we, so I mentioned we have three more shots in San Diego. We have six in Chicago. We have 10 or 11 in New York City, on and on. How can we place people in different regions so that they can service all of these communities meaningfully? And, and how many trips does it really take to, to manage our relationships in Seattle and Portland and Las Vegas? Basically, how people do it on the West Coast. And so we scaled it out based on our need and what we thought it would take to maintain the portfolio that these people are inheriting, these my my team, we call them directors of advancement, are inheriting. And then also what's reasonable for them to grow and say, how much new money can you raise while retaining this year 83% of your donors? Um, and then just modify the system as needed from there. But that's the general idea behind that. And then now we have somebody in London as well to be managing our overseas local fundraising as well. And then in terms of career development at Moisture House, we have something called a career path that very clearly outlines the the stages for everybody in the organization, wherever you're starting. Here's what is ahead of you, basically. And how do you, and how do you move up here? What are the qualifications that we're utilizing to move up? And so a lot of that involves professional achievement within the organization. Like in for field fundraisers, it's how much new money are you bringing to the organization and how much are you retaining? And then like, are you moving the needle in several different ways on different initiatives that you're touching? And uh, people look at you like a leader. So those are some of those pieces. And then really encouraging professional development as well uh, and taking the time to go out and do that, giving them a budget to go out and do that. If you're not learning, you're not growing. And I think that's real. And I, I probably could spend even more time doing that myself. I know I could. Um, I think we all could. I think you're right. I think, I think, I think it's a good learning for sure. I, I think I could probably hear it once a week and it wouldn't be enough. Maybe there's something to dive into here. Maybe there's not. I'm not, I'm not sure. But what does Moisha House think of? Is Do you guys have like an atomic unit of impact? Like I ask because you're so invested in community building and that can be a soft thing. How do you measure? How do you think about the impact that you're having? And is it quantifiable in a way? Or is it just you're saying we're putting good vibes out there and building affinity? <laughs> Yeah, there, there are several metrics that we are tracking all the time with each Moish House doing however many programs a month. In COVID, it's been a little bit different, but doing three to seven programs a month. We're tracking that piece and uh, we're tracking attendance at those programs as well. And from some of those things, some of our previous evaluations that we have undertaken and our evaluations are, are longitudinal now where like we can track impact that Moish House has had on somebody like over a long period of time as a resident or a community member. And so then some of the measurements that we're looking for there were some of the things I was saying earlier with JDC and some of that, I was assuming that they were <laughs> tracking some of those things, but we are for sure tracking, like, I feel connected to a Jewish community. I feel, I feel like I have friends who are part of this community. I feel connected to the local Jewish community. I feel connected to the global Jewish community. I feel like I'm a leader. I feel like I can lead um, Jewish rituals. What are some other ones? There's a bunch. We, uh, we do have we do have um, an extensive evaluation process, and I believe we're going to start with our next one either late this year or early 2022, and have several indicators that we're looking for that are similar to what I just said. Got it. It, it sounds like it's sort of a survey, and then you're tracking it over time. People yeah, have... yeah, that's right. Gotcha. Cool. I'm just curious, like as you look back on this type of work, a lot of it is affinity building, relationship building, community and culture building, connecting people here with people in Odessa and Buenos Aires and. Mumbai and all these places. Why is that so important? How does it relate to a lot of the problems we're seeing 
today with just social justice issues, lack of understanding, people being polarized, not being able to talk to each other. I'm just curious, like, you know, your take on it, how you think of your own work in relation to some of those issues. Yeah. So similar to what you're saying, um, in terms of social justice, like, and, and in several ways, moisture houses themselves have become conveners for topics around those conversations. One thing that comes to mind for that, and I think this does speak to your question, uh, but after the murder of uh, George Floyd, the Moisha House Rome reached out to Moisha House Twin Cities and was like, we want to do a program with you guys and learn about racial inequality in, in America, in Minneapolis. And also we want to talk about what we see here in Rome, because this really shown a light on it and people really want to talk about it and you guys are on the front lines and like that built that community between those two places but also like it coalesced other people in the community who saw that program about to happen and like i want to join that i want to be part of that conversation and giving people a space to have those types of conversations like it's not like the mission necessarily of moish house but it's a thing that moish house can do we're apolitical but also like for topics like that like we can definitely be a space and a convener around that and i think in general you should talk about like you could say during COVID and, but beyond that too, like mental health and feeling like you have friends, feeling like you have a space. Even if like my, my significant other dumped me and my friends aren't returning my texts, I saw they have a program that looks really interesting to me or they just have a Shabbat. I'm just going to go and like, uh, I'm going to RCP and I'm going to go and then I'll feel like, <laughs> I'll feel like I'm part of something bigger because you are. And that's what I'm able, I think, to extrapolate about our impact is that we are creating these spaces for people to feel part of something bigger than themselves at all times, creating spaces for people to create these types of spaces and make them their own. We give some very rough guidelines with what we expect of them, and then they go out and create what they want the world to be. And I love that. And then we could go into marriages and babies and that type of stuff. It all happens. It's all real. We send out bibs and we send out all sorts of wedding acknowledgments and all that. And it's like the greatest, it really is awesome. And it, But like the friendships that are forged, like I talked to like residents who like now I've been doing this for seven years, like residents who were residents like four years ago, whatever, about about when the time when they were residents. I still talk to so and so. I still talk to so and so. It's like, oh, I gotta get back in touch with them. That was just like such a great time in my life. And now I'm involved with this organization because of that. And like I became a leader at this organization because of that. And those are just like one, these are just one-offs of me talking. I know that with our model, that's happening all around the world. And I strongly believe in this sort of Johnny Appleseed method of create more of these. I want more, more, more. Uh, let's just see like what can spring out of this. So we keep saying yes. Uh, and keep providing the funding and keep providing the, the space. I could keep going. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> no, that's great. Awesome. That's Thank great. you. Yeah, good yeah. answer. Um, what's next for you and for Moisha House? What are you looking forward to in the next year? Yeah, uh, so sure for the organization. Yeah, there's been a lot of about a, a lot of stop and start with COVID in terms of can you have people over to your house or not? Uh, it looks different in 30 countries around the world. So North America, we had a nice you know summer and fall was different than how things are now, where we're, we're like just not really having people over all that much. In the former Soviet Union, in 13 of our Moisha houses, they're basically all in what we call a phase three which means they're having people over to their house. It's in line with local regulations. We're looking forward to like getting back to business as usual as much as we possibly can with some of that stuff. Uh, to have people back over to the houses and if it takes the spring or the summer, then so be it. We didn't get to do our junior summer camp for young adults last year. And we're talking about what it can look like to do something in person in a distanced, fun type of way this year. We were supposed to have 100 and. 
20, I think, retreats last year, staff-led and peer-led. And we did, I think, like 15 before it all shut down. We're, we're, we're starting to talk about what that can look like again. So we're excited about getting back in person uh, as much as we possibly can. And also continuing to leverage a lot of the learnings that we've, we've taken from what we've been doing virtually and the successes and the opportunities that's afforded us. And then and then we'll, I'll mention one other thing. We were talking about the Jewish learning piece like uh, that we get to do one-on-one Jewish learning as an organization. Our board has the opportunity to do it as well. One hour a week if you want during work time. And we've started to we started to shine that near that out to other organizations and say, does this resonate with you? Do you guys want to do this? And we could raise some funding and maybe pay for some of this to happen for you guys as well. And we have a couple other organizations who've signed on to start participating in that. And I think that's a it's a pretty great thing to spend time, spend time learning and thinking about tradition and something larger than yourself and larger than really any of us during work time and have that be um, encouraged by your supervisor and your employer is pretty sweet. So we love that. And then for me, I don't know. I I've I loved where I'm at. I love what I'm doing. The, the fact that they allowed me to move to St. Louis and continue in my national position and, and run the team I'm running. And I love the outcomes that we're creating in the world. So um, I'm not eager to necessarily do anything else. I think that my future probably lies in Jewish communal life in one way or another. And I love doing it. Yeah, that's the passion really comes through. That's clear. Thanks, Mike. So outside of this, outside of what you're currently working on, what do you think is the most important cause that people can tackle right now and why? Hmm. Gosh, yeah. So, uh, um, hmm. <laughs> we're an apolitical organization, so I'm saying that out loud again. Uh, but yeah, I think that I think that there's lots lots to be done in terms of uh, local communities, in terms of um, flipping seats, whatever direction you'd like to go, and supporting supporting vulnerable candidates and all that. Um, so politically, I think that's a piece for sure. So I mean, I, I could name a hundred different things. Something I also not, I'm really passionate about is is art and public art, and in more ways. To we could get more public art into more places and beautifying the spaces that we already have. And it's not just through art, it's through nature, it's trees and preserving preserving vulnerable trees that we have in, in, in some of our cities and our suburbs where people are just like, yeah, but we could also just put a, like, a, a, like a new shopping center right here. And I don't care. We could just cut this tree down. That's fine. It'll make it more, more, more interesting to other people. I think that the, these are some local causes where I'm just like, yeah, like, like me personally, like I'm, I'm starting to like attend like my, my small municipalities, my uh, meetings on those types of things and oh yeah i have a voice this is cool yeah i can definitely make a difference this is great like, those are a couple of things that i'm passionate about in particular and, and of course i think we all have so much more learning to do on racial justice and anti-racism and being anti-racists and living that truth and and calling it out when we see it and there's still so much more that we, we all need to be doing on that and organizationally we're, we're doing a bunch too and trying to apply that to the houses too and to our board of directors and yeah I can keep going. For you personally, what's the path not taken? If you weren't in the social sector, what do you think you would be doing or what would you be excited to take on as a potential career path? It's really hard for me to see where I would be if I wasn't in the social sector. When I was working in public affairs, I was working on political issues. I was working on campaigns. I was working um, in support of candidates. Like the first job I had in Chicago with Jaskolka Terman, I met Barack Obama, like a young senator, like I bet who, who was like one of our clients. Like I was like, like I, I was out there like doing that type of stuff. And I, I, feel like I probably would have found my path through that. Maybe like a director of communications for a campaign or for a congressperson is probably where I would have ended up, I think. I think the path was always going to take me somewhere in nonprofit. I just didn't necessarily know it. I I think it would have happened. I don't know though. I think I'd have a similar answer. That was, I almost went down the political direction too. And it's something that is still intriguing. So when you are ready to retire, 
when, when the sort of the career life is behind you, what yeah. would you like to have accomplished? What's one thing that you want to look back and be like, we did this and I feel great. I don't know if this means that I don't have enough ambition. I feel as though I feel as though if I retired right now and I looked at what I helped fuel the number of moisture houses that could turn their lights on, or the number of people who like had a better understanding of what Jewish life in India looks like and all that. That that's all pretty good. Like, like this whole notion of um to save a life is to save a, is to save an entire world or something like that. To give someone one experience is it could create a thousand worlds from there. And I really do feel that way in so many ways. If ultimately I end up raising an endowment for some sort of for several institutions or for several Moisha houses. They, that means that these things can exist forever without having to raise money in the same sort of scramble sometimes that it feels like we have to do. That would feel pretty great. Whereas, you know what? This is not going anywhere. This is permanent now. We, we did that. That would feel pretty great. To plug away at the work that I'm doing right now, if I did this for the rest of my career, like that would be enough. <laughs> You touched on something interesting, which is, I guess it's not unique to Moisha House, but, but certainly Moisha House would exemplify this. Is It's really a platform for so much other possibility, right? You, you mentioned the Roman chapter reaching out to Minneapolis and like seeing what can get created there. Yeah, that's right. And so that's the, working for an organization that makes things like that happen. Like, yeah, I, I, it's, 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 it's kind of all I ever wanted in some ways, but I should think bigger. I should have more ambition. I will. No, no, not at all. I think it was a great answer. Finally, how can people learn more about the work that you're doing and, and support Moisha House? Sure. Moisha is spelled M-O-I-S-H-E. It's moishahouse.org. Check us out. If, if what I'm describing sounds interesting to you, on the website, you can see where all 140-ish of our Moisha Houses are in 30 plus countries around the world. You can learn more about our Jewish summer camp for young adults, which is also pluralistic and fun in its 20s and 30s. Moisha House is generally 20s. We have retreats. So it's all on the website and um, we We'd love to see you at something. Awesome, man. Thank you so much. This has been a blast to catch up and love hearing the insights. Appreciate it. It's a pleasure. And thanks for what you're doing, giving a platform to, to people like me and other organizations to, to share the impact they're creating and the, the, their vision for the world. And it's pretty awesome. I think we'll leave it there. Our interview lasted nearly two hours, and there were some great stories and insights that didn't quite make it into the show. To hear more from Larry, including the Moisha House founding story and additional details behind how he thinks about career pathing and assessments for his colleagues, check out the show notes at causeandpurpose.com. Please join us next time when our guest will be the founder and CEO of Almost Fun, Lisa Wong. Almost Fun is a different kind of tutoring program, one that leverages cutting-edge technology and learning practices to ensure low-income and BIPOC students have culturally sensitive, accessible, and engaging educational content that empower their learning. Almost Fun is an alumnus of Fast Forward's nonprofit accelerator program founded by Shannon Farley, who we interviewed a few episodes back, and the next episode in our series featuring startup founders. Hope you can join us. Cause and Purpose is a production of Moonshot.co. On behalf of myself, Larry, and our entire team, thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to catching up with you again soon.